Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. Wimbledon quarterfinals are right ahead with Nadal getting set to face Taylor Fritz, Djokovic for Yannick Sinner. In this episode of three, we are going to look back on the past couple rounds between Djokovic and Nadal, and of course, talk about what is next, as well as this great ceremony or parade, I don't know what they're calling it, that uh, honored the 100th year of center court at Wimbledon. And we're going to talk about that, which is a crazy irony, because it is also the 100th episode of three. Uh, <laughs> Yay. How about that? Very exciting. You know, it's funny. Yeah. Well, how about that? Wimbledon center court turns 100, the most iconic court in tennis and our show. Happy 100. Happy 100. Uh, what we're going to do for you guys, the, the viewers, is after Wimbledon, we are going to celebrate reaching 100 with something that we've never done before. We are going to uh, open it up to uh, questions and we'll do a little bit of a, a mailbag, a Q&A, whatever you want to call it. Let's talk about, uh, let's start with Nadal, who uh, has won um, a four-setter earlier today against, uh, sorry, a three-setter against Botik van de Zanschkolp. Looked like a Michael four for a second there as Nadal uh, blew a third set lead, but he took care of it in three sets. Uh, he also looked very good against Lorenzo Sinego in the previous match. So Nadal is starting to look better and better, Amy. Yes, in terms of on paper and by the numbers, he's only dropped two sets in this tournament on his way to the quarterfinals. That's pretty good for Nadal on grass. And he his numbers are pretty good in terms of like the category that he always dominates, which is second serve points one. He's been in his last two matches up over 70%, which is just otherworldly. But I wrote a piece today, and I will link it in the comments. And the title of it was, yes, Nadal is winning at Wimbledon, but is he out of sorts? And I just looked at some of the more intangible things that are going on with him, including the incident that happened with Sonigo. Uh, calling him to the net and the um, the quickness on some of his service games, which you don't normally see. We're seeing Rafa leave 15 or 20 seconds on the serve clock sometimes. And um, also just messing around with his return position more than I have seen him do even at Wimbledon before. So those are sort of the three elements that I looked at. It's a lot going on with Rafa. So we see that while he's winning these matches, there's a certain kind of a jitteriness going on. Perhaps we think we conjecture. What do you think, what do you guys think is maybe causing that? Well, as I, as I wrote in the piece, I, the life is coming at him fast and hard. First of all, he's expecting a child for the first time. He's gonna be a father. He goes on center court for these celebrations and he sees Ro Roger in a suit, you know, getting all these accolades and applaud the crowd going wild. And it's almost like he can see his future. And that may have just unsettled him a bit. Like Rafa, you're in this tournament, win now or else you're gonna be in a suit pretty soon. So do you think while the French is the one that makes Rafa think he can be immortal, even though he would never do that, but it sure seems to give that way because he has this fountain of youth that keeps him winning again and again. So Wimbledon is more the face with mortality, with what what the shape of what could be. Not that it's 
looming and Roger is five years older than him, but it's like, yes, I, I, I yes, I am maybe closer to midnight and, and, and the grass is a little, a little trickier to return serve on. Exactly. Let's go kind of thing by thing. Also, Amy, I think you could have added potentially the fact that these third sets besides the Senego match have all featured blips. Um, the third sets have been by far his worst set, and and we saw him blow uh, five games to two lead against Van de Zanschkulp. Um What happened? So I was watching on on mute. Let's start with the Senego incident where he called him over to the net. Uh, I was I was busy and I saw it on mute. Mute, and I'm like, what the heck is going on? So how did you see that incident? And what happened? He he was broken by Senego. And in the third set, just like you said, and um, immediately you could tell, I, I mean, I, I use the word off temper, off temper, not ill tempered, but immediately you could tell that he wasn't himself and he, he did the this, which I've actually seen him do before. He did it with Alcaraz when they played in Madrid over something else. Um, so it's not unprecedented, but it's a bad habit. Um and then, you know, he, he took it, you couldn't really make out what was being said, but it's come out in press that he took issue with the grunting and perhaps the length of the grunting, which is not new for Senego, but the extended grunting was maybe bleeding over into when the ball was on Rafa's side of the net. So, um, Sonego just looked like he'd seen a ghost. I mean, it was very, it's very off-putting when the king of, one of the kings, one of the three kings of this sport calls you and dresses you down in the middle of a match at Wimbledon. And he ended up losing the set and losing the match. And he got broken at, right back, right? Right. And afterwards, um, Nadal said that he talked to Senego in the locker room and they were all good. And he immediately apologized, which was the right thing to do. He took ownership of it. But in my mind, it's unsportsmanlike and um, uncharacteristic, although it's happened before. And I also think it may arguably be against the rules. Um, but, you know, obviously the chair is going to give him some leeway. That's, that's just the way it is. That being said, it, it should probably never happen again. And, and I doubt it will. But I, more than anything, I think it's just a sign that Nadal is just a bit out of sorts. A little bit edgy. And, then, and now his next match against uh, Taylor Fritz, who beat him in the Indian Wells final, the infamous day after the cracked rib still. So that's very spicy. And uh, to be clear, he should have gone to the chair umpire, right? And said, right. can can you please uh, make sure that when I'm hitting the ball, Sonego's not still grunting? And that's what Sonego said. Like, go to the chair. Don't come to me. But let me just take you back to the Alcaraz thing in Madrid. It, it came out later that his foot was really bothering him. So Rafa was edgy in that match as well. Plus, he's playing this young Spanish upstart. And... It was when there was an emergency in the stands and a fan was literally having a medical emergency and a few minutes went by and Nadal kind of paced around and he 
called um, Alcaraz to the net and he said, I'm okay with continuing to play if you are. And Alcaraz was just like, huh? And the the chair umpire stepped in and said, no, Rafa, there's someone in the stands that could literally be in big trouble. We're not going to continue playing. And then Rafa accepted that and he sat down and then they helped the fan off. And then Rafa ended up losing the match. So the rule in this is that the players aren't supposed to be officials. It's like, what's the difference between an official and a player? The player, the official doesn't think he's a player. And the official's job is to maintain the order. Just like, you know, just like in a courtroom, the judge helps the, the two lawyers manage the thing. The lawyers don't make their, their deal beyond the judge. I mean, that, um, you know, this is, they're, they're not playing recreational tennis in the park and deciding, oh, well, let's play a 10 pointer instead of a third set. How about that? <laughs> I think I'm, there are exceptions to that. Maybe like safety when a court is too slippery. I've, I've seen, um, I remember last year there was a match and I wouldn't remember which one, but uh, Novak was like, are we going to keep playing here? And then he was like, we're done. And then, you know, it was the, I think players should have the right to do that. No, the players should have the right to ask the chair to decide that. The players shouldn't have the right to just go walk off the court. Yeah. That's I was point. kind of on Novak's side. It was ridiculous. No, you wanted it to end. Right. Yeah. It's, there's a, there, without sounding like uh, the judge and jury here, there's sure. a protocol for what you do that. You don't just take it into your own hands. Yeah. You say to the umpire, hey, and then both players can say, hey, we both think this is ridiculous. Let's walk off the court. Yeah. But you don't just do it yourself. And But there's a history of, of top players doing that in every sport. But look, I want to make clear, like, this is not the worst offense in the world, okay? Um, What Rafa is kind of saying there is, you know, let's decide it between men, between us, let's, let's figure this out. He was wrong the way he did it, but the intent behind it is not, like, we've all seen much worse on a tennis court. So I don't want to beat him up too much for this. I just want to say, like, is this indicative that something else is wrong? Well, and again, I'm going to take it back to what we talked about last time. I, what's the, where's the, what's the foot? How's the foot? Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I mean, look, I still think the foot, um, I don't know, but I just don't, uh, if we don't see any evidence that there's an issue with the foot, I like to kind of assume it's fine. L- let's address just the other thing. I think I have a good theory for why he was playing so fast today against Botic. Yeah. I don't think he wanted the, the roof to close. I think yes, it was like, that's true. This, this 10 minute delay, which by the way, I mean, Wimbledon needs to do something about this. It's gotta be one or the other. Either you install lights that illuminate the court with the roof open, or you start your session earlier. You cannot have like a, oh, like third match of the day, we're just gonna take 10 minutes almost every single time to right. close the roof. I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, and this, this will get into this when we talk about Novak. That's right. And, and yesterday's day session started a bit later because of this parade. So that's right. So we're having the situation where these third matches are becoming de facto night matches. And how do we, how do we deal with that? Right. And then there's also the curfew, the all England, the SW19 curfew that's at 11 PM London time. So that creates its own complications too. Right. And, and but I, I think, and I saw Novak talking about it, Tim Henman's on the committee. They take this stuff really seriously at Wimbledon and they'll think about it. And so you might be seeing a, okay, instead of a 1.30 PM start on center court, maybe it is a noon start. Yeah, I think that would be best. This whole tournament started with first day of Wimbledon, it's raining and they're not playing on the covered courts because they have that late start. And I, I tweeted like, why are we not playing right now? People, 
friends in America set their alarms to wake up early so that they could watch Wimbledon and now it's raining and you know they can't see anything so they got up for nothing not that everything should center around America but that's what that's my point like don't mind us just start locally at an appropriate time oh I don't think you're referring to America I think you're just referring to the world and also the the paying customers it's the same reason why Wimbledon opted in well in advance for the first time to play on the middle Sunday there'd been tennis on the middle Sunday, but that had always been an ad hoc. It's raining. And this last year they announced it was going to happen. And it's an interesting thing. Again, some of us who work the tournament, it was a nice day off, but that's not what it's about. It's about people who work for a living, having the chance to attend a sports event on the weekend. And it looked from all signs of it, that it was a glorious middle Sunday. It went within a lot of good tennis, nice weather, this parade, a really great, great situation. I want to throw out a couple of technical notes on Nadal uh, just from watching him, his match today. Um, I feel like he's hitting his backhand really well, flattening it out and it's doing damage and it's really hard to approach. He's hitting great passing shots. He had some really good winners down the line. And I think that's essential for Nadal on grass because he can't hit as many forehands. There's not enough time to run around the ball uh, because of the speed of the bounce. And when you do run around, and hit forehands from the backhand side of the court, it's harder to recover your position. So mm -hmm. it's just a worse. And by the way, Darren Cahill was on the broadcast saying that Botic should have hit more backhands and stopped running around to hit forehands so much. And I think that's Darren uh, understanding the grass court surface as well as he does uh, from a coach's perspective and knowing you have to hit more backhands. So I think it's really important that Nadal is hitting his backhand so well. I agree with you on that. And I've noticed sometimes in some rallies where Nadal would draw a fairly short ball to his backhand that I often see him would hit down, hits down the line, go back again, cross court on grass and really laser it. And I think he didn't do that as much earlier in his career. He was a little more content to play the backhand kind of more as a in play shot, not as point ending and that he's doing that more. And again, and this spells to me, okay, I'm Rafa. What do I need to do? If I'm going to win Wimbledon and the aggression level and, that's a great point, Gil, about, yeah, you can't hit as many forehands. I, I think the forehand, though, that that he has been hitting has been looking better the last two matches. He's he's not leaving as many short. He's getting good depth. He's hit a couple of really nice forehands uh, from deep in the court, in, in sort of the middle zone of the court, um, a winner from there. So he's he's finding the angles. Um, I thought that the forehand, the, the much maligned, Rafa forehand in this tournament has looked better the last couple matches. I was going to say it was a low bar after the Barankas match. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, it's a low bar, you know, it, it, as, as Rafa goes in comparison yes. to Rafa or, okay, gotcha. Right. Right. Not, not for me. It was a lot better than I can do. <laughs> Interesting matchup, Joel, as you said, uh, Taylor Fritz. Uh, a rematch of the Indian Wells final. Someone who's flying super under the radar. He came back from injury, won Eastbourne, and hasn't had a difficult draw at this year's Wimbledon. Part of that was Felix getting upset, Cressy losing in the subsequent round, so he didn't even need to face the guy who took out Felix. Um, and he has not dropped a set. And he's got a really big offensive game. He's got a big serve and a lot of power. So uh, this will be by far the most interesting test that Rafa um, has faced, or at least it should be, right, Joel? 
he's going to ask a lot of questions of Nadal. He's confident. It helps, of course, that he's beaten Nadal before. And uh, a lot of improvements on Fritz's movement, fitness, movement, forehand. It's kind of this whole positive cascade of things that have really helped him. And again, it's interesting. Last year, he played Wimbledon uh, after injuring his knee at the French. He played Wimbledon about three weeks after he had surgery. This year, his, speaking of feet, he had, his, he had a foot in a boot earlier this spring also. So these guys are both uh, have had their moments, but uh, Taylor is playing some great tennis. Uh, that's a really exciting match. And you I suspect that's probably going to be um, number three on Wednesday, probably number three on center court on Wednesday. And uh, you think or quite the feat? No, no. Have you used that pun, Joel? I, you don't, I know you don't write your headlines, right? I don't write my headlines, but I hadn't thought of quite. The Joel, feet. you got to You got to suggest it. If you write Taylor Fritz, you got to do quite the feat. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm not sure if my editor, if he, if he doesn't like it, he's going to give me the boots. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we'll see. But I think I think that's going to be a really exciting match. And you just know how Nadal is just preparing, practicing, thinking about it, pacing, all this kind of stuff. And here's Taylor Fritz in his first slam quarter. So, okay, let's let's take it for a roll. Did Taylor Fritz skip Clay entirely? No, he played. No, he got hurt in Monte Carlo. Okay. And then, and then, he, okay. then he, he had a, a scan, an MRI of sorts in Madrid. He went home after Monte Carlo. He, had a, he came back to Madrid. He played some, a loss in the second round, Roland Garros. Um, and then, and then okay. he comes in. I mean, I don't know. I think, I think a guy who wins Eastbourne isn't quite, uh, isn't quite under, that far under the radar. He obviously feels comfortable on this surface. And just the highlights that I've seen of his matches so far he's got a lot of confidence behind that serve and his speeds are up there so this is going to be the biggest the thing that I wrote is that Nadal is back to the tough draw again because he's got to play Fritz who beat him earlier this year potentially Curios, who we know famously has beaten him before at Wimbledon and then potentially Djokovic so it's it's back to after being easy for a while, it's back to tough again. Yeah. And he, he's definitely more prepared now for, you know, what, what he was looking like. If I, I don't know if he had to play Chilich a little bit earlier on, I, I think that was a potential fourth round. So it would have been this one. This gets anyway. the whole thing in our, and some of our, as someone tweeted about it, this gets the whole draw casting business. Yeah. Which, yeah. Draw casting and exercise in fiction. Yeah. Right. And exactly. we, we do a, we do a good job. Uh, avoiding that as much as we can. It's a garbage can. We can, we can draw our, <laughs> nice. our draws. Nice. Wow, <laughs> I mean, when I say under the radar, I also don't, I don't just mean right now, like here's a guy who's missed two masters, 1000s tournaments, who is ninth in the race, but hmm. it, does he get the respect of a top eight player? What? Is, okay. Here's a good question. Interesting. Cause I look at this draw and I look at people like Berrettini withdrawing with COVID Russians not playing. There's something a little absent. The whole tennis year is looking a little strange. It's like, we know we got these, these, these Titans and Novak and Rafa. We got Roger sidelined. We got Murray's trying to make his way back and who knows where that's ever going to go. And he's, he's, he's not where he was and whatever. So there's a whole kind of a wide open land space to what rankings mean. I mean, again, and by the way, congratulations. You just won Wimbledon. No 2000 points for you. I know, but it's not messed up. It's not messed up yet. The rankings—they're oh, about to be. Yeah, talk about that's a good Taylor point. As a, as a ninth on the race 
as a 14. All this ranking stuff is very, it's, it almost makes you think of the, the, pre, the pre-computer age, which kind of precedes me too. Like, what are rankings? What are tiers? Who's what? You know, it's kind of, it's a little fuzzy. The, the hierarchy of, of the tennis landscape is a lot fuzzier than it's been in a very long time. But to answer your question, sorry, Joel, what were you going to say? Oh, respect from whom, from how, for who. It's kind of like, it's like, you know, you guys, I always get on this one. So, well, no one's paying attention. Well, I'm paying attention. So I'm someone. So what's that all mean? (laughs) All right. So what I'm saying is, is Fritz. Fritz has been a top eight player in the world this year. Mm -hmm. By performance, he's ninth in the points race. So he's, well, he got, he got injured. Well, I'll take your question. And on clay, on clay, that's not true, by the way. I'm going to say on hard and grass, he has performed. He's up there. I'll just take it at face value. And I'll say that he needs one more career defining win. Um, I mean, Indian Wells was, was great. And, you know, that's the biggest win of his career and amazing. And he beat Rafa. He needs like one more to prove that that wasn't a fluke. So making the finals at Wimbledon would, would, you know, it it would be Berrettini-esque who I think does have that respect Agreed. or winning Wimbledon or making the finals of the U S open. He just needs that one more signature victory. Well, he beats Roth in the quarters on his way to Wimbledon semi. Not quite. That's a big one. Oh, but not for me, not half, quite. You think that's a half, a, a 0.5, not a, not a one. That's cool. And then and if he loses to Curios, I'm afraid that's what everybody's going to remember. I won't. I'll remember that he beat Nadal. Yeah, I think it would, I, would, I think it would give him a big boost if he beat Nadal. But, but point, good point, Amy. I agree. So overall. you're talking about, so in a way we're looking at getting up the, up the mountain of like, okay, he's, if you look at the Rafa as the A plus of 2022, and then some other guys who are vying for A, whether it's Alcaraz with his earlier year results, but Alcaraz proven he's still a little green at the slams, mm-hmm. needs some more seasoning. You know, so a lot, a lot of A minuses, but no one has quite grabbed the A. You know, Rafa's mm-hmm. won the two slams and the rest of the year is kind of, I mean, that's why the, the conclusion of this Wimbledon is gonna obviously yield us some interesting data, but it's more to me like the, the, the triages than necessarily how the rankings are going to go because the rankings, it's all strange too. Someone's going to win Wimbledon and we're not going to see a lot of movement on that ATP computer. I have a tactical thing with Fritz. He's an amazing high ball hitter. He, his best tournament has been Indian Wells. He loves that bounce and he flattens the ball out from high contact points. That's the only grass court attribute that I don't think he's, I don't think the low ball kills him, but it just saps some of his offense. I'm looking for slice. At a Nadal backhand slice, mm-hmm. I'm looking for drop shots at a Nadal to bring him forward. I think we'll see a lot of that. And in general, uh, just the the variety and the defense and the transition game, the volleys, that's where Nadal, I think, separates himself from Fritz. Not the, you know, bashing from the baseline. I think Taylor is going to be right there. So you think Nadal's going to kind of uh, construct, going to use some clever things, some forward movement, some slice backhand? Wow, he's gonna sound. He's gonna play like me. He's gonna. I um, think. <laughs> yeah, I think he's gonna get very tactical in this match. In ways, in in ways a little more clever than just kind of like bang and go. He's gonna he's gonna learn from things with Taylor. The return stuff is critical. Oh, good. That makes the match even more spicy. But I think uh, I like that sap. So, so you mean Fritz doesn't generate as much offense? Doesn't attain as much purchase 
on his off a low ball. Yeah, I, I see that. Okay. When the ball and even on the back end, when it's shoulder height and he flattens out, it's just a bomb, uh, especially on the forehand, but I think on the back end also. When he has to hit up on the ball and he needs to get, you know, more of a spinny kind of loopy ball, it's just not as difficult to handle. And Fritz is going to go after the more of the Nadal forehand because Nadal is not as capable of hitting of hitting forehands that bounce low. Nadal is not going to suddenly unveil a side spin forehand that's going to bounce low to the Fritz backhand. Nadal is going to be hitting balls top, maybe flatten it out. Oh, good. This is, wow, this is a great, we should do like a NFL countdown on this matchup. Yeah. I no, it's see, an interesting one. I can see a lot of short points that go very quickly. And then I can see some cat and mouse points sprinkled in between. So it could be really good. Yeah. Fritz has that big backhand where Nadal needs to be careful in that cross court that he loves against a lot of righties. I mean, Fritz will really hurt you if you drop the ball short. I'll tell you what I think makes Fritz, you know, we talked about nine, eight, top 10. What has he kind of proven? I think he's played enough tennis by now in his career, had enough odd situations. You know, last year he lost um, a, um, a tight four set to Zverev, Indian Wells. He's been through enough crucibles that he's going to be able to compete effectively. It's not like he, and it's not like he, he just kind of like, you know, accrued points at two fifties and now he's nine and he's done things. He's played some good, you know, mm -hmm. big match, long match mm -hmm. times and fighting through these injuries the last two years. Um, it'd be very interesting. I mean, the least surprising result to me is the Nadal, you know, three, four, and three. That's, I mean, not least surprising. That's the most surprising. The least likely result is Nadal winning routinely. Otherwise, yeah, it, you got to think with that serve that one of the sets at least will probably go to a tie break. And then who knows? That's yeah. my prediction. At least one set will go to a tie break and it won't be straight sets. As Felix so tested Rafa at Roland Garros. I mean, again, I, I, a match I'd love to see, and this is where all the things in the world have affected things. I want to see Felix and Taylor Fritz play each other three times in the next year. By I'm things in the world, do you mean Cressy? Well, yeah, Cressy, <laughs> but also, I mean, uh, I just mean injuries and COVID and stress and all the things that are kind of like fracturing our world and the tennis world too. Yeah, I, I think this is a similar, a similar kind of matchup though, in terms of what we saw. We saw Nadal tested at Roland Garros in the quarters. I think Fritz um, is a, a similar level player. Yes. Um, and I, again, I don't think that's kind of my point with, with Fritz. I, I hold him up to that level. Uh, okay, should be good. Let's go to Djokovic. Um, he beat Tim von Reithoven in four sets in the fourth round, and he really took out Ketsmanovic with ease in the third round. As we we were kind of suspicious that he might in our in our previous show. Joel, what did you think of uh, von Reithoven Djokovic? Um, a match that for a moment there got interesting as von Reithoven was, was, you know, redlining in the second set and serving absolutely massively. I called it, I wrote about, I covered, I called it a tale of, it was a two act play. There were two parts of the match. So the first pack called meet the new contender. And he, he did his thing and he played for real. He served and volleyed a little less than I thought he would. I thought he would try that more, just kind of see, but maybe in the very opening game of the match, Novak returned superbly, a lot of depth of, you know, Great returns. Not that von Reithoven was uh, was serving and volleying, but he was at, he was actually uh, staying back. But Novak, that depth is unbelievably deep, flat, and Novak broke his serve with a in his 12-minute opening service game 
to start that match. And Novak won it. But then the second set, the Dutchman found his way, felt a little comfortable, fought off an early break point. Three all, he plays a point I call it, it was like a Pete Sampras-like point. Cracks a cross-court forehand, gets to net, hits the smash. Now he's serving at 4-3 and found at uh, serving for it at 5-4, loses two set points. Uh, Novak played great on those set points. Hit a forehand half volley drop shot on one of them. And uh, so what does uh, Tim do? Oh, it's two aces, a deuce, set all. One set of a- them, a second serve, 112 miles per hour. There you go. So he was just feeling it and doing the thing you do when you're, you know, he, the nerves had worn off. It's playing good. It's kind of like, instead of the nerves of Novocaine, it's instead of Novocaine, it's, it's the nerves and he's feeling comfortable. And then Nova, all right, okay, okay. Now comes act, now comes act two. I called it uh, uh, the King's victim speech. Because when Reithoven said afterwards, Novak just did what he said, Novak did what his Novak thing. And Novak just turned it up and pretty much disposed of him. It was easy from there on it. I mean, I think there'd been redlining. Novak says, oh, I'm Novak. I have more. You're not going to keep that up. And, and there was the urgency of the curfew. Novak did not want this match to keep going at 11 p.m. It's so funny how these these roof openings and closings and the curfew is really weighing on the players and um, testing them mentally in a way that, you know, you don't normally see in tennis, especially in a slam. And I think Wimbledon wants to address that because I think Wimbledon prides itself on being so purely about the tennis experience that when some other factors surface like a roof a curfew, scheduling. I mean, it's bad. It's, it's one thing enough with the rain. And that was addressed when the roofs were built. And so the top players like Novak and Rafa never have to deal with that. They'll never have to worry about rain. I mean, but, but the notion that it's late at night and what if this goes five sets and coming back tomorrow, the player, the public, the whole thing. So we are certain that will be addressed. But Novak, the less who sets, he was just, he was just masterful. I, I'm not even going to say he was zoning. He was just doing his thing. And the Cinderella turned into a pumpkin. And <laughs> the guy was playing his third ATP, third main draw event of his career. I really did think that that one set was an outlier. I mean, I was watching from a restaurant and I could tell that Novak was in the zone. And I, I was saying to myself, here comes the break and he would break. And, and then um, I actually left the restaurant and I didn't see that set that Tim won. And it must have really been more of an outlier situation where he redlined. And that can happen to anybody at any time. So the fact that Novak dropped a set to me means nothing. Oh, no. I, but again, again, I don't do the show advocating for Novak's success. I just saw a guy playing. I do. Okay. All right. It's, it's, um, it's, uh, um, it's an it's it's a set. It happens, and you're right. There's a red line, and it's interesting. And, and, and Novak's Novak didn't blink. Yeah, but also, you know, Tim Tim von Reithoven. Let's be clear about like a red line for him is different than a red line from Michael Emer. No offense to to Emer, great athlete, gets a ton of balls back and play. Love the guy, but like when von Reithoven red lines on grass with his serve, it's it's actually an incredible amount of firepower coming at you. Right, but he's he's still kind of new to the party, and he did his, uh, and he and he and he did his thing, and he played well, and and then Novak, you know, Novak entered. Um, Ivan Lenzel told me this term recently, a subzone. It doesn't have to be a zone. He just entered his comfortable, grooving space, and Novak. By the way, I think, I think of our three 
no one is better at these kind of subzones than Novak because it's so it's subtle but it's powerful. And there he is. It, and it's I, very I it's very it. high percentage, right? It feels so repeatable. Yes. That's right. So sustainable. So sustainable. And it's just the the footwork, the movement, the depth, all these gears. I, I don't quite have a car analogy right now, but there's just some way he drops into that nice cruising way. And it's a little different than the than the fetter dazzlement of art, the Rafa intensity. It's just something, it's very reassuring. I find it when Novak enters that space. Don't you guys think like he's he's not gonna lose this match? Yeah, it's comfortable. It's something that I think a lot of people who play aspire to right. more than more than, you know, some of the things that Rafa can do because nobody has that technique. But the pureness or the purity of Novak's technique is something that anyone can say, well, you know, if this is the gold standard, then this is my goal. It's right there in, in front of me. I can see it. But um, just Speaking of Federer, who you just mentioned, uh, it was an interesting exchange between Djokovic and Federer during the festivities celebrating center court. And it's interesting to me that Novak brought up to Roger how adored he is and, and the huge um, crazy ovation that he got when his name was announced. Because that has been a thing for Novak, right? Like, breaking down during the U.S. Open loss last year when he finally felt embraced by the crowd. It's just still something that's in the forefront of his mind. Of Novak's mind to be embraced. Yes. Well, because Novak, as the third, as the insurgent on this trio, is having to vie for it in a, against two of the most popular people in the history of the sport. Um, Federer, certainly. Nadal, up there too. And so Novak's gonna keep figuring out, okay, how does it work for me to get my love? And then you saw, I mean, those parades are really nice. I've been, nobody does that stuff better than Wimbledon, just the nature, it's the event has earned it for one. And then the way, the way they're scheduled, the way they're conducted with, with whether it's Sue Barker or before John Barrett, there's just a way that it's, it's conducted so elegantly and so appropriately. And also the fact that the whole crowd is there. You go to other tournaments, people are on their phones, they're in this luxury suite, people are paying attention to this. And I think, I think for Novak, it was really, uh, it was really powerful. I mean, he had, he has beaten Roger in three Wimbledon finals. But uh, uh, yeah, and I think, yeah, he'd like him to come back and he'd like to probably play him again and, and have, <laughs> another, have another match of it. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for, though. <laughs> yeah. Look, Novak would love, uh, and I think anyone would love um, to get the reception that Roger got coming back to center court at Wimbledon as a human, that has to feel so good. And I, I promise we'll get back to Novak and we'll talk about his quarterfinal, but let's take a moment to, uh, talk about the ceremony. Um, yeah, if I may, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I think, I think it, this gets back to the point you made earlier about the, the playing style we aspire to as players. I think if you look at them, Novak, you're right. Novak is the one you can learn from. And it's kind of like how we ought to do it, the craft of tennis and how it's played. Rafa has inspired us with his intensity, with his competitive firepower. And that's something we can seek to emulate, but that gets into this realm of highly emotional focus concentration other than just, let me take some lessons and work on a good down the line backhand like Novak. And then Roger, 
Roger is kind of the avatar of inspiration of divine, you know, diversity and high grade disruption and beautiful shots. And it's like, oh my God, how can I imagine playing three points at all like Roger Federer? So that's part of, I think that's part of his popularity that he gets when he comes to Wimbledon because you're at the court where the game is most transcendent. And here's the guy who's kind of a greatest hits package. Like I, I looked at all of those players there from John Newcomb to Rod Laver to Billie Jean King and Roger Federer without even intending to, without studying them and not studying them, it brings in all of what they've done and more. So this whole sense of him carrying the whole game with him. And that's part of what I think makes him so bloody popular at places like the All England Club. And Wimbledon is all about, or a lot about etiquette. And uh, I think there are some subtle things that I, I think are appreciated by the British crowd. I don't really relate to this, to be honest, but like the fact that Roger, for example, doesn't grunt. Uh, the fact that he has never had a controversy of any significance of any kind. Um, I, I do think that the the audience at Wimbledon in particular, uh, that, that he does embody this very meticulous class and perfection, um, at least to his image. And, and, and he, he has to try to maintain that. You know, there is effort there. He is the Derek Jeter kind of figure who would rather say nothing than weigh in on a controversial topic because he is maintaining uh, a certain image. Right. And, and that, and look, that can go, you could like that. You could love that. You could hate that, whatever. But I I do think um, at Wimbledon, that goes a a longer way even than it might in other places. In England, they value the effortlessness, the James Bond, the cool, I, I did this story earlier this year about John McEnroe and his relationship to England. And one of the reasons McEnroe's playing style was appealing was because it too seemed effortless. And in England, they don't like, they don't, they call it, I think they call it a swat, someone, a swat, someone who looks like they're trying too hard in school. You don't do that. It's like what we would call a grind in the United States. And I'm sure I'll get, I'm sure I'll get admonished for what I didn't get right about how it is in England, but there's a term, they don't like you to look like you're grinding in school. Don't show so much effort, look effortless. Be effortless, be nonchalant, be calm and cool. And there, look at Roger, look at Roger. He had that. I mean, I thought Sampras had that pretty good, but Roger took it to a whole other level of, yep. of smoothness. Well, Roger definitely doesn't sweat much. <laughs> and um, he has shown up for matches on center court at Wimbledon wearing things like a sweater vest or a blazer or, you know, all sorts of. Um, a belt. Yeah. <laughs> And, and when he came out for these uh, festivities yesterday for the parade, somebody, the, this wasn't my line, but I thought it was a great line. Somebody said, was it Roger Federer or was it James Bond? Right. I mean, his hair looked amazing. His suit looked amazing. He looked like a model. So yeah, that, that's sort of the takeaway with Federer. <laughs> I thought Novak in the presence of all of these greats looked like a kid in a candy shop. Uh, I think he is like, I think he adores the history of tennis. He was talking to Billie Jean King and had a long conversation with her and was gushing about how much he learned uh, about, about uh, the history of the sport from Billie Jean. And then Billie Jean was watching from the Royal box late, 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 late at night. 
And Novak thanked her after the match for staying and acknowledged her multiple times during the match. I, I thought Djokovic got a huge boost from, from being in the presence of those players. And I think, um, I, I almost think that it, it spoke volumes that he woke up early on a day where he had the last match on center and made sure to give, you know, to at least, you know, be a presence at this ceremony. I don't think he'd miss it for anything, but still he had to be on the grounds for how long on That's that right. day? Was, well, I wouldn't be surprised if he went home after that. Remember he's staying, he's staying in the village. So he's close enough so he can go home and, and chill out some and, and pay attention to the matches. That village is very subdued. So he's close enough. Nonetheless, I bet the club said to him, you know, we know you're playing today. You needn't come if you don't wish. And, and there he was, and he had, he looked great in the white warm-up suit and, and taking in all those other legends. And I think he does have an appreciation for that and no other place, no other place more than center court. And I've been to all these slam main courts gives you that sense that the game is greater than the sum of every part that no one is bigger than the game. See, I think at the U S open, you feel like you're king of the world. You're king of the world. I won the U S open. I can make it New York, make it anywhere, <laughs> but at Wimbledon, you're subordinated to something bigger and greater and it's downright theological. It's got a very powerful pull. The, the history of that court, again, this is hundred years, all the great people who've, who've trod upon that court, who've played on the court, all the questions they've asked him. Mean, you've got people going back. I mean, Angela Mortimer won it in 61 and Laver in 61 and two and eight, eight and nine and John Newcomb. I mean, it's decades of the game and you kind of see, oh, I fit into a story here. I fit into a whole, it's not just tradition, a, 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 a tradition, a, a life, a, a, a dynamic quality. And then here's Billie Jean King, who, uh, along with Navratilova, has won it, has won more Wimbledon than anyone. She won 20 titles there. So it's very, very powerful. I thought the acknowledgement to Billie Jean King, it shows that Novak is empathetic, which is something, and he's not afraid to show it, it which is something that is greatly needed in our time. So really admire him for that and and continuing to do things like talk about his mental health he he lays it all out there he's honest and uh that i really appreciate let's keep in mind this could be his last slam of the year yeah it's true yeah. all right um we were talking about him kind of entering the zone against uh von reithoven i guess before we before we get, get to the, the quarterfinal, um, is anyone making fewer mistakes than Novak right now? Like, I just think that he's controlling the errors to such an extent. And by the way, uh, after the Sun Wukwan match, I was on the show saying mentally that was just not the best version of Novak. He was completely emotionless. Reese, in the last couple matches, it's the Novak that I think is is the peak Novak, which is he seems disgusted every time he makes a mistake, which uh, is usually a lot of mistakes for a lot of players, but for him, it's been very rare. That's right. I think did you, I think you texted me that yesterday. Didn't you Gil? Did we text? I did. You're right. And it is, but not, but just a mild disgust. And then he goes on. Right. I mean, I think, I think Novak in that sub zone is so disciplined. So on it. I mean, of course we'll see as these matchups continue. I mean, sinners, a, bigger question than any question he's faced so far. So we'll address that. 
but still he just he just has that gear he just finds it i think he just finds it and feels that faith and he gets that that balance and that flow going and when you watch him in it i mean it's very um it's very elegant i think at times it's very smooth and just uh chugs along but uh yeah no he's he knows what airtight tennis is all about i mean he's he's incredible more airtight than our other two as great as they are not that not that Dal makes errors but there's a different there's a different emotional vibe watching those guys through matches than Novak. Novak just battens down the hatches. Yeah. It's an, it's interesting to me with all the drama surrounding Curios that we have Curios on Nadal's side. And I'm just thinking like, what if Curios had been on Djokovic's side, then the, that match would have been a little bit different, but instead he's got kind of, cool as a cucumber, drama-free sinner who Novak has beaten on clay this year. I believe last, it was this last, year. Last it was year. last year, last year in, in straight sets pretty easily. In, in, the so, hometown, in the hometown in Monte Carlo. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was an awful, that was an awful match. I was excited for that match and sinner played very poorly. Yeah. So, um, you got to think that on grass, uh, Djokovic is better sur uh, surface. And Sinner, um, I'm not sure his coaching situation is totally settled yet. So it's been a great run for him. But I would think that the betting odds would highly favor Djokovic. Right. It's st but still, you know, that was a very good effort for Sinner to get past Alcarez because Alcarez is kind of our, the latest um, it boy appointed by me and others. Um, <laughs> you know, so. Um, whereas Sinner, Sinner has kind of the pro not quite progressed as much. You know, I haven't seen him winning some clay. You know, he's kind of a little, a little bit. You know, he was an underdog against Alcaraz, and yet yes. more experienced. But that was that was a fine match. So yes, I'm sure Novak is a significant favorite. But I know he he needs to take this is serious. This is a serious level of opponent that's different than the other four guys he's played. Hundred percent. That was the best I've ever seen Sinner play against Alcaraz. I have not seen a performance like that. Uh, the the returning was very Novak like. I mean, it reminded me intensely of Novak the way he bullied Alcaraz's first serve and put it right back at his feet as often as he did. And and there are definitely some similarities in the way they return serve mechanically, what they look like. And and here's a skinny, wiry, rangy mm -hmm. guy who skied as a child, who has wow. really good balance um, and, and just is very good at making hard returns when his body's in a position where it seems like he should be stretched out and hitting very weak returns. You know, Novak said, Novak said Sinner reminded him of himself that I hadn't thought nice skill on the ski, on the skiing thing. So now you got this, that's boy, talk about the, the sport of posture and balance. I think there's something there and Sinner's sliding a little on the grass. Like this can't be a coincidence. There's gotta be, there's gotta be some skiing skills involved here. I just don't think that Sinner is anywhere near Novak's abilities right now. And right. he's not as, as good a mover. Um, the Gumby thing, the stretching, the, um, the menacing to the point of making you hit another shot. I think he pulls the trigger more often than Novak. And I think Novak's backhand is superior. Oh, I agree to it every point. And I think that you mentioned the Gumby thing is, uh, is kind of interesting. This gets to one thing about 
Novak. You know, Federer in the course of a match is going to hit a shot that you never knew existed or something. Rafa is going to hit a shot on the run that's dazzling. Novak is going to retrieve with the Gumby, get himself back in the point. That won't win the point for him. The next two shots will finally close the point. Mm-hmm. But there's a way, yeah. and it doesn't, ha- it doesn't need to happen that often because that's because Novak is so in control of so many rallies. But that is when that happens, and it can happen versus anyone, but you think, wow, wow. And then you realize, right, practice, training, core work, stretching, stretching, work, balance. I mean, the, that's, that's part of the whole package that makes Novak so incredible. It's kind of like, uh, it, it's like the, uh, the artist who, who drew something in five minutes to charge $10,000 for it. That only took you five minutes. Well, no, it took me 40 years. Mm-hmm. So that one stretch took Novak, has taken Novak 20 years of that hard work. Yeah, and it's really the polish in Novak's game where I feel like you have the separation. Uh, th- there are, I think, Sinner, similar to Fritz Nadal, I, I look at the matchup similarly, and uh, Fritz and Sinner are both power baseliners. Sinner's a better mover. Fritz is a better server. Um, I think Sinner can bang from the back of the court with Djokovic. Like if we're going to have rhythmic baseline rallies that, you know, power baseline, I actually think, and, and Djokovic is great at that, but I think Sinner is too. And uh, Sinner's backhand to me is world-class and it won't be as much. Djokovic is used to having this really very distinct advantage backhand to backhand with righties. I don't really think that's there against Sinner, which always gives Novak a little extra challenge. But again, it's the, it's the variety. It's he volleys much better than Sinner. His drop shot is much better than Sinner. His serve is better. He defends better. It's all those, those outer edges. But I, I think, I think when it comes to like slugging it out, let's say like the kind of stuff we see in training, like let's, let's hit cross courts, Yannick. Like if they were training and hitting cross courts, I think Sinner's right there. Well, so you're saying that Sinner's there is right there with, Novak, the way you said Fritz is kind of right there with Rafa in the in the bangage rally. It's the then, same matchup. It's, then, it's and then what's interesting is you're right. Like Novak, I look at every time I anytime I look at a stat, not that I do it all the time, I see Novak's winning about 80, 90% of the times he comes to net. Not that he's doing it 70 times a match. And it gets to the implication that anyone developing needs to see about these three, the enhancement of tools. And I'm gonna bring up uh, something I saw earlier today. Paula Bedosa got killed by Simona Halep. And she said afterwards without acknowledging, I just played bad, that's all I did. And without even recognizing how Halep had maybe beaten her. And so these players are just think, I just gotta play my game and do my thing. And the great thing about those three, they knew they had their games and they got to the top five, top three pretty quickly, but they keep adding dimensions to it. You know, Roger with the, uh, with the drop shot approach and the improved backhand. Uh, Rafa with the volleys and the slice back and Novak with some of the same tools. So I think that's, that's one of the things. It's not just that these guys were born great. They keep making themselves better. I mean, Amy, you talked a while ago about Novak and his serve and the things he's done to improve his serve. So that's, that's a thing. So you think, so do you think Novak's going to bring out the slices and the volleys versus Sinner? Uh, I actually think Sinner is a impressive low ball hitter. Um, Actually, especially on the forehand, on the backhand, Sinner doesn't have much of a slice, so you could slice cross court. Um, but I, I, I think the drop shot, yeah. Sinner's weakest, the weakest part of Sinner's game to me is the miles per hour on the first serve and the volleys. 
Do you also think Sinner's a little patterned predictable? Very. I mean, there's not, there's not a lot of variation. So that's good for the better player in Novak, who's not good. I, Novak is better at that. Novak's you guys better. talked about the bangage rallies, you know, from the back of the court. And if, if they played or, or it, well, I'm sure they have. I'm sure they've practiced huh. a lot because. They, they do all the time. Uh, yeah, Monte, Monte exactly. Carlo guys. Right. And, and Sinner worked for many years, of course, with Piatti, who is, is right down the road from Monte Carlo. And probably Sinner is thinking to himself, where are those bangage rallies? Because I can hang with Novak in those. But in tomorrow's match, I think he's going to be realizing that, oh, it's, it's a different level when you get into actual match play, especially at a Grand Slam. And I agree with you guys 100%. He doesn't have the skills in the front court and just doesn't have the experience mentally having been in this situation uh, much. So um, I, I, I see Novak as the big favorite here. Um, the, the question is, will Sinner be able to take a set off of him, you know, knowing that von Reithoven was able to take a set off of him? I, I don't know. I, I, I have my doubts. I think it's a different deal. I mean, Sinner's on a different path and he's been established himself as a top 15, 10 player. So he's going to need to play the type of tennis that his career, Von Reinhoven had, yeah, had a, had a moment of a red line moment and it was his you know, magic ride at Wimbledon. And then Novak destroyed him in a way that I don't see Novak destroying Sinner. I think it's kind of, I, I do think Novak is more of a favorite versus Sinner than Rafa is versus Fritz. I actually give him more... Uh more respect, I think, in terms of how close the match can be. I mean, the meat and potatoes, especially with Novak Djokovic, uh, is a lot of the more, the more straightforward and robotic baseline rallies that he's so good at winning. And I do think he's going to have to reach into his back pocket and leave his comfort zone to find the advantages over Sinner. I think he'll do it. But if Sinner plays like he did against Alcaraz, it should be a great match. The other factor is that was the best I've ever seen him play. So maybe he's not that good. Um, and, and maybe we'll see him dip. So do you think, so which, okay, Nadal versus Fritz, Novak versus Sinner. For what it's worth, I thought Novak is more of a favorite versus Sinner than Nadal is versus Fritz, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Educate me. I think it's debatable. I, um, I actually think, hmm. How is it debatable when Fritz beat Novak? I mean, Fritz beat Nadal earlier this I, year. I think it's, I think Nadal is uh, more vulnerable, but, yeah. but well, but Amy, the surface couldn't be more different, right? It's like the highest bouncing surface against the versus the lowest bouncing surface. And uh, Sinner hasn't played. Sinner is at his, he's 20 years old. So 2021 Sinner shouldn't really be too similar to 2022 Sinner. But at, at the same time, I'm not disagreeing. I think Fritz is a more dangerous opponent to Nadal than Senator Djokovic. But I think both of them are very, very similar in, in matchups where I think, I think from the baseline, when it comes to the regular power baseline rallies, forehand to backhand, before you get into volleys and approach shots and defense and serves and returns, I actually think Fritz and Sinner are right there. 
I, there just aren't that many like long extended baseline to baseline rallies. They don't I mean, need to be long. They serve don't need to be and long. return is really where it's at here. I, I so, agree, but yeah, I, I agree. But and, and, and Fritz with his serve, um, I would think would be the bigger threat to Nadal, but I agree. We're just, but then, we're spitballing. I know. But then what, what about Sinner with his return? Cause that's the one thing he beat John Isner in three sets and didn't go to a tie break. That's true. And then he just bullied Carlos Alcaraz's yeah. serve and Alcaraz was averaging 120. So uh, again, I actually think my main take that I'm strong on is that they're really similar in terms of yeah, the makeup of the matchup. That's fascinating. You've got one guy who grew up in Italy, the other guy in Southern California, but the way the game has evolved, I mean, Taylor Fritz, you know, it's, we're no longer in the Pete Sampras, Jack Kramer era of the fast court Cervalli, Southern California, Taylor Fritz, you're right, kind of a power baseliner. Without, though, so Sinner prized his way into Novak with his return. Fritz prized his way into Rafa with his serve. Mm-hmm. And they've got to each wedge their way around the other stuff. I mean, these are, these are neat matchups. Um, I'm, I'm personally a little more excited about the Nadal-Fritz match, but that's just my, my preference as a, as a flavor, as a personal thing. But as, as tennis overall, they're each very interesting matches. I am pumped and- for them. Yes, and and let's not forget that Djokovic's return into Sinner's serve um, should be pretty good. That's yeah, Amy. That's like a mismatch. I mean, yeah. Sinner's not going to get. Yeah. I don't think Sinner's going to get a lot of help from his serve. He's going to have to. Yeah, and if you don't hold serve and you're having trouble holding serve and at Wimbledon in your service games, um, good luck to you. I agree. Again, forehands and backhands are where he can hang. Nowhere else, except except Sinner's return. I love it's a great return. All right, uh, that was a good talk. That'll do it for this episode of Three. Looking forward to the quarterfinals. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. We appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Apple, and if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of Three.